As my family and I were away this past week to visit my wife's family on the other side of the country, I had asked our elder Chris to preach this morning. And when I found out that he was preparing or uh, had possibly the opportunity to prepare a sermon on Thanksgiving, I thought it would be more fitting that he preach it last Sunday in preparation for Thanksgiving Day. And that was midweek, and he crammed every night the rest of the week to prepare that sermon, and so I wanted to recognize that and thank him for that in that last-minute switcheroo and uh, the sacrifice that he and his family made to be able to preach last Sunday. Well, it's good to be here this morning, and we will continue our series as we study through 1 Timothy. And as we come to chapter 3, we begin that chapter this morning. We come to a passage where the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy on the various requirements regarding elders, as we will talk about over the next three or four weeks, and then deacons. As we talk about elders, which, by the way, are the same as pastors in the New Testament, functionally, practically in the church, they may do different things, but they are the terms used for those two positions in the New Testament are the same. Pastors are elders, elders are pastors. And when you think of an elder or a pastor, especially here in the United States and the American church, we often use the term calling. How did you receive God's calling? That man has been called. In fact, some of you have been in churches where you recognize that the elders were not qualified to be elders, but it was kind of passed off because, well, they've been called. And we use that term freely, but what in the world does that mean? Especially if you understand that the New Testament tells us that God no longer speaks audibly to people, what does the calling mean? How do we know you've been called? And when someone faithfully serves as an elder and then decades later is morally disqualified, does that mean they were not called in the first place? And what about churches? Churches who don't preach the gospel. Churches who allow immoral men who disobey the scriptures to become pastors and elders and say they are called. Is that a calling for that local church? Well, I believe as we cover verses 1 through 7, of 1 Timothy 3 over the next few weeks, we will clarify what exactly the man of God, God's man for the local church, is called to be. There are moral qualifications, and there is specific, objective aspects of life that we can see when we talk about the calling of God to a man to be an elder. It is no small thing. And as you will see over the next few weeks, especially with the moral qualifications, that's just the basics. That's just the beginning. Now, when it comes to calling, if someone were to ask me, we have kind of boiled it down to three things that someone can see objectively that they may be called. Now, that, this is not comprehensive. There's a work of the Holy Spirit that men may not be able to recognize or see. But there are three specific things that we are looking for as far as we in our human logic and experience can quantify. The first is the personal desire. For someone to be an elder or a pastor, they must desire to be it. We can't just force someone because we think they should be one if they don't want to be one. Secondly is a giftedness that is affirmed by others. They are gifted in shepherding. They are gifted in explaining the Scriptures, in teaching the Scriptures. And in that point, we see that some of these things can be learned. There are pastors who go to seminary first because they're learning theology and they're learning how to preach. So we see that some of these things do not come naturally but there is a foundation there that can be refined through seminary, through experience. And we say giftedness affirmed by others because there are plenty of men who think they are gifted, but nobody else thinks they are. And so there must be an affirmation from other 
people. And thirdly, as we will see, not this Sunday, but over the next couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, is personal integrity. Of course, this man needs to have the moral qualifications of someone who is going to be a representative of God, not to mention a Christian. In fact, when it comes to personal integrity, you see from your bulletins that I have entitled this series, God's Man for the Church. I was tempted to entitle it, Same Standard, Higher Accountability. Because save for one or two qualifications, again, which we won't look at this morning, but in following weeks, all of those qualifications are the same for all believers. But there is a higher accountability for pastors in that they can go into moral failure and can no longer be elders, but they don't lose their salvation. And so that would be the higher accountability. You can fail morally, but you won't lose your salvation. But for your position as an elder or pastor to fail morally in one of those 15 qualifications, you can no longer be an elder. Thus the phrase, same standard, as for all Christians, higher accountability. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What we will see over the next few weeks are an expansion of those three requirements. And we will see this from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This morning, we will only cover verse 1. And it encompasses that first of those three, the personal desire, but we'll see more than that as it is filled out by something that is clearly given only by God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to read the whole passage to you, follow along, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer... It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, in these seven verses, we will see two qualifications for a biblical church elder which in reality are 16 qualifications. For our outline, we will see the calling and the character. The second one, the character, there are 15 subpoints or 15 moral requirements. But as I mentioned earlier this morning, we will see our first point in verse 1, the calling of the elder. The calling of the elder. Verse 1 again says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. As I mentioned as we began this morning, the conventional way of referring to someone's desire to become an elder or pastor is a calling. And although you don't see the terminology here, there is a clear calling from God for this role. And what we will see is a desire of the individual to do the work of an elder, but also the spiritual or moral qualifications of an elder. And as we unpack this text, there's a lot of emphasis on what the person wants and what kind of person he is. So when we keep that in mind, there is an aspect of hard work. There is an aspect of that individual's dedication to the Lord and to the work of the ministry. There is the power of God given to these individuals, but they can't just hit cruise control and float down the hill. There must be hard work. But none of that for the elder matters if he is not particularly gifted by God. Now the flip side of that is that one can be called and gifted by God to be an elder and yet still morally fail because of their own sin 
which in turn will lead to their disqualification. And we all know people who are clearly called to be pastors or elders, yet due to moral failures sometime down the road, are no longer in that position. Were they called? We could say for many of these people, yes, they were. But their commitment to the Lord and their own personal purity was not as great as their desire perhaps to have a position of authority and to preach the Word of God, and so they failed morally. And I want to be clear because as some of you seek to be elders and all of you sit under elders, understand that there is a personal discipline and desire that needs the elders' effort and attention. But without God's calling there, you simply should not be an elder. Your church may call you one, your church may designate you one, but you shouldn't be one. And that's absolutely fine. This is not for everyone. Well, with that in mind, let's get into the calling of the elder in verse 1. Paul begins by using a phrase that is found only in the pastoral epistles. It is a trustworthy statement. Now, in the pastorals, he uses this five times. And each time it introduces a basic reality or truth that has great significance and most likely one that would have been familiar to Christians. And this time, what he is saying is that when a man desires to be an elder, it is a very good thing he desires to do. And we understand this even in the secular world. You hear about someone who says, oh, my son is, you say, where's, where's your son? What is he up to now? Well, he joined the military because he has a passion to defend our country. You say, oh, man, that's great. That's a good work that he desires to do. I said, wow, your, your son graduated from the Ivy League. What is he doing now? He must be making a lot of money. Well, actually, he decided to forego a, a, a professional job in the States, and he's working for a nonprofit overseas to help cure diseases in Africa. You say, oh, that's a, that's a good work that he is doing. And it's the same idea. We understand this, and perhaps in the church, because many of us have some sort of baggage, we have probably all, myself included, been offended or hurt by an elder we've been under before. We have disliked something that a pastor has preached. And so we almost look at the elders or the pastors up front as a talking head to love or hate, to agree with or disagree with, rather than a person, a person within the family of God. And so we kind of distance ourselves and see that, and we lose the idea perhaps because there are so many elders who are doing the wrong thing or are not qualified to be elders or are failing morally. We forget that when someone desires to be an elder, it is a good thing that they desire to do. And to aspire, the word that Paul uses here, means to desire or to stretch out. The picture then is someone who wants something and is stretching out, reaching for that thing. In other words, if someone desires to be an elder, it's not like someone who just says, I see the cookie jar, and man, I could go for a cookie right now. But he reaches out, he gets a stool, he does whatever he needs to do to make that happen. So the first aspect of this calling is that someone actually wants to be an elder... And that would, of course, means he is also taking steps toward that goal. Not trying to impress the pastor or the other elders, not jockeying for position or to be seen, but working on his own spiritual life, working on shepherding other people, encouraging other people for the glory of God, not for the position, not to be seen. And notice very quickly that the subject of the aspiring is any man. The grammar as well as the context shows us that this is not a general word for mankind, 
but for men, males. We saw this principle introduced two weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. What this man aspires to is the office of overseer. And we'll see that what is stressed in this verse is not the title or the office alone, but the work that an overseer does. But first, what is an overseer? In the New Testament, there are three words used of the men who have authority over a local church. And our English translations from the Greek are these three words. Elder, overseer, and shepherd. Each of those emphasize a different thing. Each of those refer to the same individual. The word elder, when it's used, emphasizes the spiritual maturity of the individual. Now, this is seen logically in that we are using a word often associated with physical eldership, older age, and the wisdom and experience that comes with it, but using it in a title for someone in the church regardless of their age. He uses the same term later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and in his letter to Titus when he says that he left Titus in Crete in part to appoint elders in every city, Titus 1.5. So elder. That's probably the most common word that we use for overseer, especially here in the American church. The second word used is the word shepherd, which is translated pastor in Ephesians 4.11, same Greek word. Speaking of the unity of the body of Christ in Ephesians 4, Paul says in verse 11 and following, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors. That's a Greek word for shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, of all the positions that God has given us, of the ones that are remaining, one is pastors or shepherds, the goal is that we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to spiritual maturity. Now, in that same letter, Ephesians, Paul uses the verb form of shepherd when he instructs the Ephesian elders to shepherd the church of God or pastor the church of God. Similarly, in 1 Peter, both the terms elder and shepherd are used when Peter says in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. Again, two terms for the same person. And this title for elders, shepherd, connects their role and character to the one from whom they have taken the baton, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. At the end of the exhortation to elders that I just read from 1 Peter 5, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The wordplay there is very clear regarding the chief shepherd and the human shepherds. The elder, by the way, the shepherd, the pastor, does this ultimately for the glory of God. I remember when I was in seminary, I had a friend that I often encouraged to go to seminary. He had a heart for God. He would be sent all around the world because of his work. And instead of seeing the sights during the free time, his free time, he always felt compelled to find a local park where he could street preach and preach the gospel. And he said, I don't see how you can do what you can do. And this was a man, admittedly, who was obsessed with being successful according to the world standards. Before I could answer him, he said, well, the retirement benefits are pretty good, aren't they? And that is because there is this crown of glory, which in part we all receive, but there is a special blessing and reward for the faithful elders who have served well on earth. And of course, the word shepherd brings to mind what Jesus said about himself 
In John 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, when we use this term, all that a shepherd in the field would do for a sheep comes to mind. The feeding, the training, the guiding, the disciplining, the caring. That is the role of the overseer. And finally, the third word that we have in the New Testament for the elder is the word that Paul uses here, the word overseer. As the English word implies, this is someone who has the responsibility of overseeing others. In a company, for instance, this would be a manager or a supervisor who watches over the employees to make sure that everything is done correctly. Now, in the church, this is the person who watches over the Christians in the congregation. This supervision is again done for the Lord and is thus of a spiritual nature, such that what is being supervised is not to please the shareholders or the owners, but to please the holy and living God. In his greetings in Philippians 1.1, Paul says that he is writing to all the believers in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, which are the same two offices in the church that Paul will describe here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul tells the overseers to shepherd the church of God. And that verse brings up a good point about all of these titles. Again, they are all titles for the same person. You don't have an elder who's an elder, an elder who is overseer, a pastor who is a shepherd. They are all descriptions of the same role, the same person. And as we have seen, each title emphasis, emphasizes rather a different aspect of the elder, but every elder is to practice all three functions. More to Paul's point, anyone who aspires to be an elder must pursue the work of the elder the shepherd, and the overseer. But back to our text. Even though Paul speaks of the one who, quote, aspires to the office of overseer, he doesn't stop there. If he did, then it could be argued, weakly, but still argued, that someone who just wants the title or the position is justified in pursuing that or desiring that. However, at the end of the verse, Paul states what the noble ambition truly is. It is the desire for the work. It is a fine work he desires to do. The ESV and the NIV say he, he desires a noble task. King James, he desireth a good work. In other words, what he desires is not the position for the position's sake, it is not just for the title, it is not just for the authority or the accolades or the Scripture-mandated honor from others. It is the work. Now, Paul describes this work as fine, noble, honorable, excellent, of high quality. It is described as such because the highest and most excellent goal that any man can pursue is the glory of his Creator. And in our sinful world, that is first and foremost about the gospel. An overseer does fine work because he is key to helping God's people protect the gospel, preach the gospel, and live out the gospel. His specific responsibilities include ruling, preaching, and teaching, 1 Timothy 5.17, praying, James chapter 5, caring for the church and being an example, 1 Peter 5, setting church policy, Acts 15, and ordaining other leaders, 1 Timothy 4. And when you understand all that the office entails, you see clearly that this is not a job for someone who just wants the title. He must desire the good work. I have met 
and sat under many elders who should not have been elders. Some did not fulfill the requirements we will see in the rest of the passage in the coming weeks. Others had no desire to do the work and, in fact, did not do the work. Some did the work but were not examples of godly living nor of being motivated by love. Others were eager to set church policy for the good of the church as an organization but did not care for the people. It is because of the depth and breadth of the work that being a biblical overseer must start with the desire for the work. And that word desire means to set one's heart on, to passionately long for. This is an inner compulsion. Again, for the work, not the title, not the honor, not the authority. Now, this fine or noble work that he desires, end of verse 1, is indeed work. It demands a great deal of energy, both physical and spiritual, not to mention the emotional toll it takes on a man and his family. But again, done for the glory of God, the joy received cannot compare to the sacrifice. It is too great. But the reality is, in understanding the commitment, but also the calling and giftedness from God, nobody outside of this role can understand the depth of commitment, the emotional connectedness, and the controlling heart of slavery the elder has for the congregation. Not the members of the church, not the deacons, not even his wife can fully understand. They can and must support and encourage. But no matter what you think, they will never understand. The sleepless nights, the callous knees of prayer, the uncontrollable weeping, it is only through the calling and gifting of the Holy Spirit that makes a man so in love with God and his people that he is willing to continue the task at hand. Turn with me to Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Don't worry, I'm not leaving. Hebrews 13, 17 is a great understand, gives us a great understanding of the leadership of the church. That would be the elders, but also brings in a responsibility of the congregation. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Although written to those who are not elders, we learn much about the elders' role here. First, this is not a physical protection. We have doctors and police for that. This is a spiritual protection as we watch over your souls. Second, the elder must do so for God's glory and is held accountable by God. We will one day give an account. How it works out in the end is not clear. People picture some sort of slideshow or movie or list of do's and do nots, successes and failures. We don't know. But all elders will face God one day and give an account for how they shepherded the souls in their care. And I personally firmly believe that although a main aspect of it, this accounting goes far beyond just what I preach and what I do personally as I get into your lives, as I show up at your doors, 
shepherding, caring. The second sentence in Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that whether the congregation makes it a joy or a trial for the elder to rule well, he will still do it. He is God's man for the church. Now, when you make that difficult for an elder, it does nobody any good, but he'll still do it. It's the same as in your marriage. You don't fulfill your role. You make things more difficult for your spouse to fulfill their role, but they are still commanded to do it. And throughout the world, there are many, many men and women who have the title of elder. They have the position in the church. They are called elder. They function according to the bylaws of their particular church as an elder. But they don't care. They do not weep with their congregants. They do not pray for them. They do not take on the role of slave, but prefer to wield the power of a master. They are not people who are above reproach. They are not people who are approachable. They are merely a talking head, a suit and a smile, a known person in the church. But no matter what they are called or how they are treated, they are not God's men for the church. They are counterfeits. They are failures. They are in sin. There is a high calling. My prayer for this sermon is that it would motivate those who desire to be elders. It would encourage those who do not. And it would convict deeply my own heart and the heart of your elder in this church. We believe we have been called to be God's men for the church. It is a high calling, and believe me when I tell you, we know this very well. Now, there are a lot of misunderstandings out there of what an elder is or how one becomes an elder. And I want to take a few moments to address these as they are sometimes believed due to seemingly logical connections one makes in his mind or even because of past experience. In other words, what you have seen done in other churches. This is not a complete list of fallacies, but these are misconceptions, misunderstandings that I have seen played out in other churches, even some like-minded churches, and things that I've heard even within our own congregation. So I want to give you five of them. The first is being an elder is not an honorary title or position you give to someone simply because they have been at the church for a long time. This isn't like an honorary college degree that is a sort of thank you or gift of appreciation for someone or just wanting to add that famous name to your roster of people with degrees. There are qualifications to be an elder and you don't become an elder simply because you've been at the church for a long time, not even if you've been at the church a long time and are very active in ministry. There are clear qualifications to be an elder. And the church that I got saved at and grew up in, by God's grace, because it was a very weak church, I don't think any of the elders were qualified to be elders. One openly bragged about cheating on his taxes. The other slept through every single sermon, but they were all old friends of the pastor. They were an, given an honorary title. Frankly, we could use more people, like what I've just described, those who stay in the church a long time and are active in ministry. But it does no, the church no good to start handing out titles in a way that ignores the clear teaching of Scripture. Secondly, 
being a deacon is not a stepping stone to being an elder. I don't say that as a warning to deacons. I say that to honor our deacons. I mention deacons as opposed to titles such as Sunday school teacher or small group leader because deacons and elders are the two offices of the local church named in the New Testament. Naturally, someone who serves the church as a deacon will have the kind of commitment and heart for the Lord and His people that you want to see in an elder, but they are totally different positions. Do deacons become elders? Absolutely, all the time. But they don't naturally become elders because it's the next step for the deacon. Because everyone in the church is about service and holiness, the ministries of elders and deacons will overlap. The ministries of all of you will overlap with the elders and deacons. But when we get to the requirements of the deacons' life, we will see many of the same requirements of the elder repeated. But to say that a deacon will inevitably or logically become an elder is like saying if an accountant at Google gets a promotion, they will become a software engineer. They are two completely roles, completely different roles. Can an accountant become a software engineer? Sure, but it would be unique. It is not expected. It is not normal. They are separate and distinct roles. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the many things this reminds us of is that a deacon is not some sort of failed elder or lesser elder or someone who isn't quite good enough to be an elder. Being a deacon is a noble and hard and laborious God-honoring ministry in its own right, and we have to understand that. Third misconception, to clarify, is that age is not a factor. We will see in the coming weeks that new believers are forbidden to be elders, but understand that this is the early church, so people of all ages were becoming believers, including here today. And so new believers could be those in their 60s, their 70s, 80s. When it comes to age, there is no mention of any sort of cutoff or minimum for a church elder. Obviously, experience and wisdom and greater length of time studying the Word will help, but not all elders are, are physically elderly. In fact, one of the most influential evangelical churches in America, if not the world today, located on the East Coast, was for a long time ruled and run by an elder board filled mostly with men in their 30s. And as far as I know, it still is. It is a church where many, many people, many of my friends who are master's grads, go to their church, it's called the Weekender, to learn how they elder, to learn how to do it properly from men who are largely in their 30s. Fourthly, as with Christianity in general, being an elder is a gift from God, but there's hard work that the individual is responsible for. I've mentioned this a lot already. When we get into the character requirements of an elder next week, we will see that an existing elder can be disqualified and that is what makes it distinct from Christianity and that you cannot lose your salvation and stop being a Christian because of sin. We know from parts of the New Testament that unrepentant habitual sin may indicate that you're never a Christian in the first place, but that's different. But you do lose your role as an elder because of certain unconfessed, unrepentant sins. Now, the hard work involved is first and foremost in his own life and family, but the ministerial work itself also involves time and effort, prayer, study, commitment, visiting, counseling. And I make this point because there must be an understanding of a calling, but also working hard in response to that calling. Again, you don't get called and then flip on cruise control. On the flip side, without the calling, no amount of study and work will qualify you to be an elder. Without the calling and gifting of God, no amount of study and work will qualify you to be an elder. You may become an elder because the people who gauge those things don't know any better. 
but it will eventually be shown that you should not be in that position. As one friend who was a missionary once told me, back when before we had other elders and I was talking to him about the situation, he said, well, some people have it and some people don't. And that is simply the calling of God, whether you have it or not. And fifthly, the fifth and final misconception about eldership or how one becomes an elder leads me into what I want to talk about for the rest of our time this morning. And I wanted to make sure that I address very fully this, this misconception before we start looking at the qualifications of an elder next week. And the fifth misconception is this. Meeting the spiritual qualifications of an elder does not mean you should be an elder. As we look through those 15 characteristics, there will be many men who fulfill those characteristics, but that doesn't mean those people should be elders. So before we get into the character of the overseer, again listed out for us in the next several verses by the Apostle Paul, I want to be very clear about what we are talking about here. Because what we will see in verses 2 through 7 are the basic requirements of the elder. They do not make a man an elder. They are basic in that they are necessary to be an elder. But simply having these characteristics does not mean someone is automatically called to be an elder any more than someone with a college degree is automatically called to be your boss. There's more to it. To put this in terms of the secular workplace, these qualifications that we'll see over the next two weeks will get you in the door for an interview, but that does not mean you are qualified for the job. Years ago, I was having, having a coffee. Do we say that? That's Albanian, having a coffee. Having coffee with an intern. You say that in Albanian. You want to have a coffee? Where I was having coffee with an intern, many of, who, many of you met him at our retreat a few months ago, a couple months ago, and he suggested a particular individual who's no longer here in our church as someone who should be an elder. And I know why he suggested this individual, because that man was the only person outside of the pastor with whom Jesse had deep theological discussions with. It was clear that this individual liked to read theology and think about it and could biblically defend his views. And this was someone that I knew quite well, which I explained to Jesse that he was not someone that was qualified to be an elder. Jesse asked why. I responded very simply, he doesn't love the church. He loves theology. He loves telling people about theology. He doesn't love the church. If a man is truly called by God to be an elder, he will fulfill the basic requirements of an elder in verses 2 through 7, but he will also exude a clear love for the church. He is someone who you know doesn't just engage in conversation with you because he's supposed to but because he wants to. He is someone whose social life revolves around the people whom he shepherds because they are family. They are the people he thinks about in the morning. They are the people he thinks about as he falls asleep. They are the people he thinks about that keeps him from being able to fall asleep. They are the people he calls when he's bored, the people he calls when he needs help, the people he calls his closest friends. Even God, very God, when he was on earth, did not zip around the world on an angelic chariot meeting with world leaders and noted army generals. He did not, in his sovereign knowledge, spend time with the children that he knew would grow up to be rich and powerful. No. Outside of his time alone with the Father in prayer, he spent every waking moment of his earthly ministry with his flock, the twelve. Any man can force himself to do these things because he wants to be an elder, but the elder who is called and gifted doesn't need to train himself to do so, he just does. 
I hope you understand that in no way am I an example of this. But I can think of two men whom I discipled in college. One is now an elder. One is now a pastor. That's beside the point. They were college students. I was in seminary. They were guys who wanted to be discipled. They became my closest friends. They both were in my wedding. One of them, the pastor, I was his best man. To this day, when talking about people I don't interact with normally, they are two of my closest friends. My closest friends, period, now, are some of the men that I have discipled and become friends with. When we meet together, I, a lot, they know that my meetings are an hour, but on my schedule I leave for two, two and a half hours because we just talk, we hang out. I want to spend more time with them. See, God's man for the church is God's man for the church not because of skill and opportunity alone, but because God's man for the church loves the people of God's church. On the occasion that I miss church, no fault of these people, I have learned who to ask and who not to ask this question. How was service? Because I don't want the answer, it was good. I've learned not to ask the question of those people. Because by God's grace, when I miss church, it is missing family. It is like missing my son's game and asking, how was the game? I don't want to just hear it was good or even we won. He's my son. I want the play-by-play. In the same way, when I miss our family gatherings here on a Sunday, I want to know everything. How was the sermon? What did he preach about? Did he go short? Did he go long? Who was there? Who was not there? Who came early? Who stayed late? Did you notice anyone talking to each other that don't normally talk to each other? Did you see any groups leaving together to go out to lunch? Who was with them? Where did they eat? In other words, I want to know all the things that nobody in their right mind would tell me. But because I missed a family gathering, I want to know everything. So I love my people. And if I miss a service with you, I feel it. That is not my own strength. That is God's calling on me. And I wanted to share this with you. Before we talk about the qualifications of an elder in the remaining verses, because this isn't just about a checklist of moral qualities. Being an elder is not just checking off. I did this, good, treated my family well, check, preached a sermon, check, prayer, check, encouraged that person who's sick, check, done my job. Being, el being an elder is not your life's work. It is a lifestyle. The man who said, stand up for Jesus in his dying breaths, who inspired the hymn we sang this morning, he preached to a bunch of students at YMCA, which in its origins was a Christian organization. The C stands for Christian. He's preaching to a thousand young men. And he was so passionate about his calling and his love for the church that he said, even if it meant that my arm were ripped off at the socket, I would still preach the gospel. And it was just a few days later that his arm got stuck in the cogs of that machine and got crushed and he died and in his dying words said, stand up for Jesus. That is a calling of God. Now with all of that in mind that we've talked about, the character of an elder is still very important because you are representing God and taking care of the church for whom he died. 
And as such, it is very important that there are specific moral necessities within a man's life before he can be considered for eldership. And we will look at that in the coming weeks. For today, take what I have said. Seek elders who fit what I have described if you are not part of this church. Expect this of the elders here. Demand this of anyone who calls himself an elder. You say, I have no desire to be an elder. What does this mean for me? Well, all that I just said, but also people often ask me when they leave the church or they visit the church from out of town, they say, what do I look for in a church? There's a lot, there's a few things that I say, but everything I've said this morning goes on the top of the list. Find elders who aren't just elders because they fulfill the necessities on paper. Find a church with biblically qualified elders who love the people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that what we have seen this morning and what we will see in the coming weeks, that you will continue to make Chris and I those men. If there are those who desire the office of overseer and desire the work, may you help them to gauge their lives, whether they are truly called or not. We pray for a revival, an awakening in the church in America and across the globe, that people would look to the Scriptures and know what it means to be a man of God as a Christian, a man of God called to be an elder or deacon. Protect our church, Lord. Protect our church from making elders of men who should not be elders. Protect our church from, in that the elders we do have now or in years to come would not be morally disqualified or disqualified in some other way. Use our church. Help us to see who the men should be to rise up to the role and the title and the work of an overseer and a deacon. May you continue to build up and strengthen our church in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.